Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today we're heading back to the 4th century BC to take a look at one of the world's greatest ever philosophers. Indeed, according to today's guest John Sellers, Aristotle is even more than that. He might well be the single most important human ever to have lived. John Sellers is a reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway, a visiting research fellow at King's College London, and a member of Common Room at Wolfson College, Oxford. He's the author of a very sleek and stylish new book called Aristotle, Understanding the World's Greatest Philosopher. It's going to be released very soon, and I spoke to him all about it just the other day. For more on this episode, please do visit our website at tttpodcast.com. Okay, John Sellers, let me begin by uh, giving you a very warm welcome on a very cold winter's day to Travels Through Time, our podcast. I thought it'd be really good just as a beginning if you could explain a little bit about your academic background, because it's very interesting and obviously connects with the topic we're going to talk about today. But also just talk a little bit about your philosophical interests too, please. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks very much for having me. My background's in philosophy. I went to university to study philosophy over 20 years ago, and I've never left. And very quickly, I became most interested in ancient philosophy in particular. So I teach ancient philosophy at Royal Holloway, part of the University of London. I mean, I have quite broad interest in the area. I think it's absolutely fascinating period. I've written quite a bit about the ancient Stoics, recently Epicureans. But Aristotle has been a recent focus, and he's always been there in the background. He's quite a, a challenging, intimidating figure in many ways, I think. Uh, so it's taken me quite a while to get to him and to feel confident to talk about him in public, but he's uh, an incredible thinker. So he's the subject of the next book I have that's coming out shortly. Yeah, and he, I mean, he's a fabulous um, subject. We're going to get on to him in just a moment. But I thought before we talk about Aristotle, just a bit more about philosophy in general, because we do live in challenging times. The economy is weak. Where we've got this post-COVID malaise. In much of the West, there's an identity crisis, and then we've got all the problems of the environment and so on. Do you feel that people beyond the academy are turning to philosophy in greater numbers as a, as a form of solace, perhaps? Because we have this great corpus of knowledge and thinking that goes um, right back into the past. And I know you mentioned before, one of your specialisms is stoicism, and it feels like we need a bit of stoicism in the 21st century. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, there's certainly a strong interest in in Stoicism in particular, but I think philosophy more widely and, and in some ways ancient philosophy in particular at the moment. And there may be a number of reasons for this. I mean, for people who have a broadly secular outlook, who have lost the foundation that organised religion once gave them, there's a sense in which there's not an obvious set of shared ethical values, a kind of a framework for thinking about how best to live. Um, there's a sense in which um, some of us who are no longer connected to an organised religion have lost that. So people are people are looking for something. They're looking for answers to questions about, OK, what's most important in life? What has value? What ought to I to be prioritising? How do I fit into this crazy world that can sometimes be confusing and overwhelming? And the ancient Greek philosophers were grappling with all of these questions and were doing so in a broadly secular context. 
And for much of, of Western history, these ideas were regularly a point of reference for people. So the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero, for instance, summarizes many of the ideas of the earlier Greek philosophical schools, Stoics, Epicureans, Plato, Aristotle, to a, a lesser extent, and presented them in a way that an educated Roman audience could engage with. And those texts were fundamental point of reference for the educated population of Europe right through to the 18th century, right? You would, you know, if you were fortunate enough to have a, an education, you would learn Latin, and one of the first people you'd read would be Cicero. And one of the things that he would teach you is, here are a whole series of ways to think about how to live a good life. And it, those texts are now coming back into vogue, I think, for many people as they're, they're looking for some kind of guidance. And I think that's quite an exciting thing as well. And obviously, um, we're going to be talking about um, Aristotle today. And it seems really interesting to me that in just these few short steps from Cicero, you, you're right back with him, however far distant he is. So your book, well, let's let's talk about the book, which is going to be out very, very soon. It's a great triumph of distillation as much as anything, because it's only 150 pages long, but it's an introduction to Aristotle's thought and who he is as a character in history and why he matters today. Born in 384 BC in uh, Stagira, am I pronouncing that correctly? So on the northern coast of Greece. Uh, correct me if I'm not. He lived until 322 BC. And um, and in your subtitle for the book, which um, Aristotle, the world's greatest philosopher, you, you make that great claim for him. But I know elsewhere you've made an even bolder claim that he's the single most important human being to have ever lived, which I have to ask you to try and substantiate because it's such a, I mean, we were talking about condensing things down, but that's a really big claim. Absolutely. Obviously, it's a it's a bold provocation, right, to to get people to stop and think. But let's think about let's think it through for a moment, right? What would it mean to be the most important or influential person ever to have lived, right? I mean, important and influential are perhaps slightly different concepts, but let's kind of wrap them together for the moment. It would have to be someone who has transformed the way people live for centuries, if not millennia, right? So how many serious candidates are there um, for people who've done that, right? Well, not Karl Marx. He's far too recent. Jesus, maybe. But was he a man? Right? Was he God? Right? That's already complex territory. Muhammad. But was he really teaching anything? He was a prophet. He was reporting the word of God. The Buddha. Right? He's a philosopher. He's a thinker. He's presenting ideas. They certainly transformed the way many people have lived. But you know, there's a focus there in, 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 in Asia and only much more recently in the West. Confucius, right? So this is our shortlist, right? A very, a very few, uh, a handful of people who have really impacted on the way people have lived for centuries and centuries. And, and Aristotle, I think, would fall into that group. But I think Aristotle's impact, impact is much more pervasive and widespread, given that he's effectively laid the foundations for science, which has transformed all of our lives uh, across the entire world. He's impacted on the way in which we understand uh, drama and literature, the way we think about politics. He's offered a framework for how we ought to live. He, he invents formal logic, right? Literally, there's no other individual in human history who's invented multiple academic disciplines, biology, logic, political science, and more broadly, social science. There's no one, I think, that comes anywhere close to having that kind of impact for so long. 
Mm. There's a there's a great uh, line in Walter Jackson Bates' biography of Samuel Johnson where he 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 points out that wherever you go intellectually on the road, you, you often find Johnson coming back having been there before you. And I get the same feeling with Aristotle. Whenever I try and study something, it often you often find it all leads back to him somehow. And whether it's a deconstruction of his original thinking or um, just a sense of him laying the groundwork for things, it's, it's, it's often him that you find there, which I think is um, a great sense of him as a platform for so much that came after. But he is almost one of these figures that you can't imagine was a, was a human because he seems to transcend the human form himself. But he was. He was this human from... The, the 4th century BC. And he actually fits into this very nice lineage, doesn't he, where you have Socrates and um, then Plato and Aristotle comes. And there's a nice connection between all of them. And we can maybe talk about Alexander the Great. So these these figures who people are familiar with, and he, he does sit into the chronological um, framework in that way. But one line of Socrates, which is often quoted, is about the unexamined life not being worth living. And that's echoed in Aristotle, in a way, isn't it? Because you have this argument you set out right at the beginning of the book about his enthusiasm for thinking about things, which can not only just be something that we're programmed to do as humans, but something which can help us to leave, lead a happier and better life. Do you want to talk about that just for a moment? Yes, sure. So, as you say, Socrates is famous for having said that the um, unexamined life is not worth living. There's another famous famous line uh, from, from Cicero again, where he says, Socrates was the first person to bring philosophy down from the heavens and into the marketplace and into people's homes. Yeah. And by that, he meant that some of the very earliest Greek philosophers were literally um, interested in the heavens. They were doing astronomy. They were doing early natural science, people like um, Thales and Anaximander. Socrates kind of steps back from that and focuses on um, self-knowledge. Who am I? How ought I to live? Those sorts of questions. So Socrates, according to this traditional narrative, um, makes philosophy very practical. And there are a, a couple of passages that hint that Socrates in his youth uh, was interested in that kind of natural philosophy. But as he matured, he stepped away from it as being of less practical interest. So we've got to think about how to live, who we are. Self-knowledge is the key. With Aristotle, you you see him pick up that Socratic idea, but there's a sense in which he's not interested in just limiting it to himself. So Aristotle thinks that philosophy begins with wonder. We're naturally curious people. And we're not just interested in self-knowledge. We want to understand everything. We're interested in ourselves and how best to live, but we're also interested in the external world and how that operates and how we fit into it. So there's a sense in which Aristotle, the great polymath, wants to take on that Socratic project um, but he wants to expand it to include everything. He wants to bring in the work of those earlier natural philosophers and say that that's part of the human project as well. So it's not just about knowing ourselves. We want to know everything. And we want to do that because we're just naturally curious beings. This is what mm -hmm. he identifies as one of the central characteristics of what human beings are like. Mm. And 
I think what I also want to ask you just at this point, before we, we dive into the details of his life, we're going to go and have a look at him at kind of close quarters in a moment. But I said he is a legible human creature. We can we can nail him down in, in chronological sense quite well. But what actually of Aristotle survives to us today? Because this is, we're talking over 2000 years and there's a lot of knowledge which can be lost very easily. You know, some of the great philosophers, I'm sure you could tell us about some of which we know very, very little indeed. But when it comes to Aristotle, how much of his original work or, or biographical details about him survive today? And we can say with any certainty, that's, that's Aristotle. We've got quite a lot compared to many other um, Greek philosophers from this period. So many of those philosophers who were working before Socrates we have very, very little, just a few fragments and quotations, and it's all a bit sketchy. The first Greek philosopher for whom we've got a substantial body of text is Plato, so Aristotle's teacher. And then Aristotle is the other great thinker for whom we've got a significant body of material. He wrote a series of dialogues that were published during his lifetime, following the example of Plato, who was also writing dialogues. And those have actually been lost. So the pieces of writing that Aristotle intended for a wider audience, we don't have. Um, but what we do have is an enormous quantity of texts which are generally thought to be lecture notes, materials that he was working on for his own use, for teaching in his school, the Lyceum, which I think we'll probably come back to a little later on, which were then preserved by his pupils for a couple of generations, um, sort of fell out of view for a while, according to the traditional story, and then were rediscovered and edited and, and made available. And that generates all sorts of interesting textual problems. So for instance, there are two books by Aristotle called Ethics, one called the Nicomachean Ethics and one called the Eudemian Ethics. And on the face of it, these are two separate books, but there's a chunk in the middle that's the same in both, right? So what's the relationship between these two? Is one an earlier version and the second, the other one a revised later version? or is that not how it was at all? And this is just the kind of fabrication of later editors. Yeah. So there's lots of material that we're confident Aristotle wrote uh, and that, that accurately sort of captures his thought. But whether the form that we've got it in now bears any relation to how Aristotle conceived it is the more challenging question. I suppose it must be one of the fun aspects of studying philosophers from this period is, is this sense of being the puzzle maker, putting bits together and seeing, you know, weighing each piece of evidence on its own. I don't know, is it a bit like having the the get back documentary from the Beatles but not having the proper album? Is it is it that kind of idea that you might have lots of preparatory things and then you, you're not quite sure in what form they were originally put out in? Is that a good way of thinking of it? Yes. I mean, for many, I say for many of the other um, Greek philosophers where we really are just dealing with fragments, it really is a question of putting together the puzzle as best we can. There's a sense in which with Aristotle, the problem is the other way around, um, that it's an embarrassment of riches, that we've actually got too much material. Um, it's a lot to digest and to put into some kind of order. There are questions of chronology, right? So, I mean, for a long time, people would be inclined to read all of Aristotle's works as if they form part of a single kind of monolithic system. So then you've got to work out how you deal with any potential inconsistencies and so on. But of course, this was a human being who was alive over an extended period of time, was writing for an extended period of time. So maybe some of these are earlier works, others are later works. Perhaps it'd be a mistake to try and look for consistency across the board, because as we all know, people change their minds over time. So, yeah, yeah 
that's the challenge. It's a fun challenge, and it's one that we're going to try and rise to um, today. You've given us, you know, some quite specific moments in history, which is which is good. And let's let's get into it now because we're going to have a little bit more leeway than normal. Usually, we just look at one calendar year, but obviously, with uh, Aristotle, it's quite tricky to do one year. We're going to look at three particular dates in one phase of his life, and put together, they do bring us, I think, into the close range that we try to get to. I suppose I'll begin by asking you a question which I put to most people. If you could go back in time to have a look at Aristotle, where would you like to start? What is a what is a point of real interest for you? Okay, well, let's let's start in 347 BC. Okay. Just for a bit of platforming again, really. This is Aristotle by this point is in middle age, isn't he? Did I say he was born in 384? So yeah, he's he's someone who's matured now, and um, I'll let you pick up the story from from here. But we're in we're in three four seven. Yeah, sure. So twenty years earlier, Aristotle was a teenager, and he left his hometown in northern Greece and came to Athens for the first time to um, study at Plato's Academy. Uh, he's probably about seventeen or eighteen. His parents had died when he was quite young, maybe about ten years old. Uh, he was looked after by a guardian, an uncle, I think, and that uncle had studied in Plato's Academy much earlier. So I don't know whether he excited Aristotle about stories of the Academy and that made Aristotle think, I want to go there, or whether he was kind of packed off and told, you've got to go, this is going to be your education. But either way, he went there as a teenager and he studies in Plato's Academy just on the outskirts of Athens for 20 years so from, let's say, from the age of 18 to the age of 38. So in 347, we've got, as you said, the middle age Aristotle. He's 38. He's been a student for 20 years at the feet of Plato. And in that year, Plato dies. So this huge extended intellectual apprenticeship that has dominated the first half of Aristotle's life finally comes to an end. So it's a real turning point in his life. And... Our sense is that even at this point, it was clear that Aristotle was the great successor to Plato. He was, as you mentioned earlier, we've got this great intellectual triumvirate of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. So one might think that Aristotle would be the natural person to succeed Plato and become head of the academy. But that doesn't happen. Um, Aristotle is overlooked. And instead, Plato's nephew, um, Spusippus, becomes head of the academy. And you can read this in various ways. It may well be that Aristotle felt horribly slighted by this. It may be that, in fact, this was down to much more practical concerns. So just to give a bit more context, when we talk about Plato's academy, the academy was a public gymnasium um, just outside the walls of the city of Athens. And you can go and visit the site of it today. It's a public park and you can see the archaeological remains. So this would have been a public place where anyone could have come and talked and and exercised and so on. And during the period in which Plato decided to start teaching in this location, he would over time have bought some private property that would have, if you like, been the base of operations for his educational activities. And Aristotle, of course, was an outsider. He wasn't an Athenian, having come from northern Greece. And so as a non-Athenian citizen, he would not have had the right to own property. 
And also, if this property was owned by Plato's family, there may well have been a strong incentive for it to remain in the family as a valuable asset. So Spusippus, the nephew, becomes head of head of the academy. He can inherit the property. It stays within the family and so on. But nevertheless, Aristotle takes this as a key a moment to move on. Right. The old master's dead. Someone else is in charge. So he leaves Athens uh, in 347 and he heads across the Aegean to Assos on the western coast of Asia Minor. Um, and he goes with a group of people from the academy that all leave at the same time. So the death of Plato is obviously a key turning point. I just want to pick up on a few points here which are really snagging and generating interest because you've described the academy in broad terms, but could you give us a sense of its size? Would it be, I mean, to, to go to one of these things for Aristotle to be enrolled there and to be there for 20 years seems like a it is a massive apprenticeship, as you say, but how many students might there be in an academy like that? And how special would it have been for Aristotle to have been one of them? Gosh, I mean, that's a really good question. And to be honest, it's surprising how little we really know. Um, just by coincidence, I was reading something just the other day about the um, the educational institutions in ancient Athens. This was a very old book written in the early 20th century. And it describes them almost as medieval universities, right? Everyone would have worn black gowns and this, that and the other would have happened. But to be honest, we really don't know. So as I was saying, the the, the academy itself, the gymnasium was a public place. Anyone could, could go there. Anyone could just turn up and walk and talk. And people did. Um, we have reports of Socrates going there and and, and talking philosophy with, with people long before Plato had, had set anything up more formally. And so we don't really know what this formal mm. institution would be like. And that's quite different. It's almost different to what we have today in the UK and probably in the States and other, other um, educational institutions we can think of, because often universities might be in a city, but they're quite closed spaces. They, say, for example, you're talking to me from Oxford at the moment. Um, for the for the general person who lives in Oxford, they can't just stroll into a lecture hall or or maybe even there's, there's that impermeable but there's that boundary between the the students and um, the, the citizens. But it doesn't seem to be there in quite the same way in in Athens at this time. I mean, it's it's very hard to tell. But I mean, one it's not clear that there would have been any kind of formal process of enrolment. It could have been that any interested person who had the leisure time to do so could just turn up and listen and would have been welcomed to join the group. And presumably it would have been a relatively small group. I mean, we don't get the sense that, you know, public lectures were advertised and large numbers of people were, were coming along. It was more, here's a group of people really interested in this particular set of problems and they're going to hang out together, think these things through, discuss them, write some texts about them. Does that suggest that Aristotle himself came from considerable wealth, that he had the leisure to be able to live a lifestyle like this? Because I imagine this was still a world which was um, nasty, brutal and short, to borrow a phrase from elsewhere. I mean, even to get to the age of 40 or so, he must have been doing reasonably well, must have been healthy. A lot of people would have had to have lived a subsistence life working in trades or farming just seems again these are maybe questions that there's no obvious answer for but it suggests to me maybe that aristotle must have come from some means yes i think so um i mean plato certainly came from a, an aristocratic background um aristotle's father who as i said died when he was quite young had been a doctor 
So that's a that's a good a good job then, as it is a good job now. And one of the reports suggests that his father was a doctor at the Macedonian court, and so so would have been moving in those sorts of circles. And in fact, much later in Aristotle's ethical works, one of the things he says is, if you re- and this is something that has annoyed various people since. He says, if you really want to live a good life, you need to be able to engage in contemplative activity and intellectual pursuits. And of course, only someone who's got the leisure time to do that mm-hmm. and the res- the financial resources to, to, to give you that leisure time will be able to fully live the best possible human life, which, of course, seems to rule out that possibility for many people. Mm. Now, we're calling this Plato's Academy. Was that as it was known at the time? Or again, are we not sure? But I suppose in either case, um, his personality dominated this this place. It's kind of great colossus of philosophy today. What kind of thinking was being done at Plato's Academy? What were the great concerns of the um, the students there and of Plato himself? Yeah, so Plato's intellectual career really is um, prompted or provoked by the example of Socrates. So those ethical questions about how to live, what is virtue, what is justice, what is courage? Those are the sorts of opening questions um, that start Plato on his path. But later on in his career, around the time that Aristotle would have been in the academy, Plato's attempt to answer those sorts of ethical questions turns very, very metaphysical, right? So. The, the seemingly very practical question, you know, what's good? What's the good thing to do? Suddenly becomes the question, what is the good? And does the good exist independent of any particular good actions or entities? And if we're going to be able to know this thing called the good, then presumably this is something that doesn't change through time, right? If something's morally right or wrong today, then presumably if that's subjectively the case, then it would have always been morally right or wrong. So if this is something unchanging and the physical world is changing, presumably this thing, the good, is outside of the physical world and exists independently. And so in what sense does it exist? So these are the sorts of metaphysical questions that Plato is grappling with. And um, one key model for thinking about how things might exist eternally in an unchanging way independent of the physical world would be mathematics so you know the number two doesn't change it's always the number two it exists independently of the changing physical world maybe concepts like goodness justice courage exist in a way similar to the way in which mathematical entities exist perhaps and famously there's said to have been a slogan across the door of the academy um, and I, don't, I presumably this would have been Plato's residence saying, you know, only those who know um, geometry can um, enter here. So the idea that a mathematical training was going to be an essential part of this, the kind of intellectual rigour that Plato thought people were needed to bring to these sorts of questions. Mm. It's wonderful to fast. Well, it's fascinating to think of Aristotle in that context, walking under that gate and talking about questions like these um Plato's got a very famous theory of forms, hasn't he, which um, you write about in the book. And I wonder if you could say a little about that, because it is, again, um, a little way into his thinking. Yes. So, I mean, as I was just describing, if we're trying to understand whether something is just, for instance, then one question we might ask is, okay, 
what is it that all of these particular things that we are prepared to describe as just, what is it that they all share in common? What is it that makes them all just? Is there some overarching universal idea of justice that we can use as a point of reference to say this thing is just while this thing is unjust? Mm-hmm. And this overarching concept, like the concept of the good that I was talking about a moment ago, this is, would be the idea of justice, right? Or the ideal form of justice which exists over and above any particular instances, and in some sense is the explanation of why these things are just. And so Plato is incredibly slippery on all of this, and in different dialogues he gives different answers. And indeed, in some dialogues he criticises his own theory. It's it's a um, it's it, you know incredibly complex to piece together. But in different places he'll say, well, individual just actions participate in this idea of justice in some way or they are caused by this idea of justice in some way but they certainly presuppose this idea of justice right and this idea will give us an objective universal value that we can try to access and that will give us secure firm knowledge of what's just and unjust and how we ought to behave so this becomes plato's very metaphysical response so Socrates is a very practical question about how it is we ought to live. Mm. The connection between Plato and Aristotle is really interesting. I was talking to a friend about this the other day and they were saying how um, often in art they're depicted very differently. Plato's this kind of brawny wrestler, kind of very strong and powerful character, where Aristotle is this, I don't know, almost an ugly character with a beard. He's seen, uh, there's, a, there's a great contrast between the two of them. Is that is that a fair summary of um, what visual culture has done to them? And is it saying something about the relationship between them? It might just be an expression of difference between later um, generations of artists. Well, I think the most famous artistic image of Plato and Aristotle together is uh, Raphael's in his uh, painting, The School of Athens in the Vatican. And it shows the two of them standing side by side and Plato is pointing upwards as if to the realm of the ideal forms. And Aristotle has got his hand pushing down as if he said, no, 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 we need to keep things back in reality. Um, Aristotle is the great natural philosopher. He's interested in understanding the physical world. Uh, he um, wants to resist in many ways this kind of very otherworldly metaphysics that Plato starts to um, develop when he suggests that the things that really exist and the things that um, we can really know are things outside of the changing physical world. Hello there. Quick word from me about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Now it's January, it's pretty cold and dreary outside, but here I am, sat in the warm, with a copy of Ace's beautiful brochure of tours for the year ahead in my hands. And it's a brochure full of delights. In March, for example, you can head off to Ravenna with them, the famous city of mosaics to absorb the Roman and Byzantine architecture. Or in May, you can discover the treasures of the wonderful art collections of Harvard and Yale on a tour through the great art collections of New England. If you're into music, then there's a tour to the Richard Strauss Festival in Dresden this April. Or if you just want to get some fresh air in the great outdoors, then there's a cultural trip to the county of Norfolk in June. 
In fact, in this catalogue, there's the details of more than 100 different tours from the UK to Uzbekistan, from the USA to Sweden, and just about everywhere in between. So there's something for just about everybody. To have a look for yourself, head to their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. It's a nice idea of contrast again, upwards and downwards. And you bring it together at this moment in 347 when um, when Plato dies and the succession of the uh, the Academy goes maybe in a different way. I suppose we're always, because it's we're dealing with ideas, we should always imagine it. It's tempting to imagine at least that it was part of some some intellectual dispute, but it might have been something much more practical, as you say. But let's let's leave that alone for a while because we've we've covered this early portion of Aristotle's life, which is obviously really formative for him. But then something really, really interesting happens to him, doesn't it? And you're gonna take us to the next, which is the second of the the three scenes that we're gonna talk about. And it's um away from it's away from Athens. It's when three, four, four. Where did yes? Where did Aristotle get to then? Okay, great. So three forty-seven. He arrives in Assos in Asia Minor. He goes there with um, a fellow ex-pupil of Plato's Academy called um, Hermias, who is obviously clearly comes from a very privileged background because he goes on to become the ruler of of Assos, and Aristotle is with him for a couple of years there. In fact, he marries. Hermias's niece. So again, he's 40 years old, he gets married, he's escaped this very long education, he's really becoming a man in his own right. This is so this is kind of the moment of his full maturity, we might say. And then after two or three years in Assos, he moves the very short distance to the island of Lesbos, which is very close to the to what we would now call the, the, the Turkish coast. And on the island of Lesbos, he starts to study. The natural world. He starts to study animals and in particular in fish. So for anyone who's been there, I haven't, I'm afraid, but the island of Lesbos has a very large open lagoon in the centre of it. And Aristotle, we're told, spent a considerable amount of time on the island of Lesbos, um, on the on the shores of this lagoon, um, examining fish and, and other sea life, trying to understand how they work. And intellectually, this is a big shift for Aristotle, right? So away from all of this otherworldly metaphysics and mathematics that he'd been studying with Plato in Athens, and now he's literally getting his hands dirty in the real physical world, trying to house, understand how things how things work. And he's dissecting fish. He's cutting them open, looking at all the different organs, laying them out on the beach, saying, OK, what's this? What does it do? How does it contribute to the functioning of this organism? These start to become the questions that motivate him. He wants to know what all the different bits are for and how they fit together and what their purpose is. And these become the kind of the central questions then for Aristotle, the biologist, Mm. who wants to understand the natural world first and foremost. It's such an interesting change in intellectual direction for him. He becomes... The figure that just rises in my mind when you describe this is Charles Darwin, because he seems to be a, a very Darwin-like character. And whereas Darwin was, you know, on his great voyage in the Beagle and he ended up in in the Galapagos, you know, this this lagoon which uh, Aristotle is drawn towards. So it's a, maybe it is a product of the travel and he has access to all of 
you know, this this kind of abundance of nature. But it does produce such a change in his work, doesn't it? And do you want to talk a little bit about the, any of the fragments of work that we have from this time, or is there an abundance, as you said before? Yeah, I mean, for Aristotle's biological works, we really do have an abundance. I mean, I think, I think something approaching a third of... The, um, the surviving texts that we have for Aristotle are um, about biology. He writes a book called On the Parts of Animals, On the Movement of Animals, On the History of Animals, On the um, uh, um, Progression of Animals. So a huge amount of, of uh, material is written up. Um, we're not sure if it was written up precisely at this time or, or perhaps a bit later on, but he was keeping copious notes and he's describing all of the things that he he sees and he's looking for common commonalities and patterns he's classifying animals into different groups based on different shared characteristics right so uh, we're going to call all these fish because they share these things in common we're going to call all these things uh, uh reptiles because they share these things in common and so on and so forth he's the first person really to do that work and try to put the natural world into some kind of order uh, and to mm. do so on the basis of firm principles and uh, not just sort of superficial resemblance, we might mm. say. So, again, like a Darwin character, he did have this great enthusiasm for nature. There's a, there's a lovely quote here where you say, in all natural things, there's something marvellous, which is mm. um, just capturing his sense of wonder towards the natural world. But of course, he didn't have Darwin's theory of evolution. He really believed that species were created in a form that they stayed static within, didn't he? He didn't believe in 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 change in nature in the way that we do today. No, that's right. Um, there were a couple of earlier Greek thinkers who did make some very crude hints towards what we might think of as evolutionary theory. I mean, obviously nothing as as a, as advanced or complex as natural selection, but the idea that that more advanced animals evolved from simpler animals that perhaps all began in the sea was an idea that had been floating around. And Aristotle rejects that idea, right? He thinks the idea that that changes could just happen by chance, uh, and that's how these things could come about, is something that he can't see at this stage. So he doesn't quite make that conceptual leap. The core idea that really shapes his understanding of uh, the natural world and is informed by his biological studies is the idea that things have some kind of function or purpose. Things are for something. That's why they are as they are. So, for instance, if you were to encounter, if if you were to to cut up a fish on the on the on the shores of of the lagoon at Lesbos, and you take it all apart and you find an eyeball, right? And you're looking at this thing. It's got a certain shape. It's made out of certain stuff. Um, it used to sit here within the animal. The one point that that is absolutely central for Aristotle is the claim that. Unless you know what this is for, you've no idea what it is you're looking at. And what it's for, its functional purpose, is for seeing, right? And if you don't have that bit of information, there's no way you can understand anything. So the idea that you could describe the natural world simply in terms of the movement and variation of different pieces of matter in motion, a very kind of sort of reductive materialism, he thinks that won't wash that's not going to give us the kind of explanation that we need to understand what's going on. So, but there's a connection. There's a connection with Darwin here, right? So, you you know quite rightly mentioned Darwin. The other, you know, the two of them together, perhaps the two great biological thinkers. 
Um, Darwin, of course, is equally fascinated by the idea that things have a function. The, the extra step that Darwin makes is he wants to understand how those functions came about. But what Darwin is trying to do, of course, is explain precisely how it is those functions have appeared without the need for any kind of sort of designer or creator. But they're both equally committed to the idea that we see functions or purposes within nature. Mm. He also asks this absolutely fascinating question, doesn't he, which is what makes something alive? So you might have a dead fish on the shore and one that's swimming in the sea, and essentially they're the same because they have the same component parts. But there's something different about them as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about his work and his thinking in that area? Yeah, sure. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. So that's another instance of why a kind of reductive materialist attempt to try to explain the natural world um, isn't going to wash because the living fish and the dead fish are composed of exactly the same stuff. So there's got to be something, there's got to be something else that makes the fish alive. He'll use the language of souls, right? Soul is obviously an unhelpful translation of of the, of the Greek yeah. word because it has all sorts of other connotations that that have come along since. But he'll use the language of of souls, but he doesn't want to conceive this as something separate from the matter, right? So Plato, his his great teacher, um, literally did think that there were you know immortal souls that are separate from from physical bodies. Aristotle wants to try to conceive the soul as as what he calls the form of the body right so plato who talked about his forms as being something separable from material instances aristotle wants to see form as something like the organization and structure of the matter that makes something up right so in order for a fish to be alive it's got to have all the right pieces and they've got to be all the in the in all the right places and so it's got to be structured properly that doesn't get us to explaining the difference between the corpse and the living being because they're both structured and organized the same way. So he adds to that the idea that something that is alive has a set of abilities or capacities. It has the ability to do certain things that the, that the dead thing doesn't. And so the soul of the fish and by extension, our soul can be defined in terms of the abilities and capacities that we have, right? So that becomes the kind of defining characteristic of living things, what they can do. Mm. And he also, I mean, he's very, um, he's, he's a great observer, it goes without saying, and he looks very closely and he looks in a very methodical way. There's a few examples. I think you mentioned one about... Um, bees which seem to really really puzzle him do you want to talk about any specific instances like that which which interested you when you were researching this book i mean there are all sorts of quite entertaining bits and pieces in aristotle's biology where he says things that are just patently false right so i think one example was to do with insects or mites that appear in uh, piles of grain and he sort of said well We've no idea where these come from. Perhaps they just spontaneously generate, right? And I mean, it's, no one would, would would even contemplate that as a as a sensible answer today. These things don't just kind of, you know, come out of nowhere. He just doesn't have an explanation. And so that's, I suppose, him just sort of raising his hands and 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 giving up at that point. Maybe they just appear. We don't know. So there's, I think that that what I think I found most striking in those sorts of examples 
was his um, sort of intellectual humility. He sort of saying, well, we just don't know. Maybe it's this. Um, maybe it's something else. Maybe with more observation and with more examples, we'll be able to work this out in the future. So there's a strong sense that there's a great sort of tentative attitude mm. in all of his thinking about these things right it's like on the basis of what we can understand now mm. this seems like the best explanation and in fact there's a great passage in one of his biological works where he says these are our theories but they are completely open to falsification based on further evidence it's the evidence that's king so he's not claiming that he's got all the answers far far from it and i think that you know, that's the kind of real, the real scientific spirit that he brings to bear, which is so important and one of the things that that is central to his legacy. It is um, great humility, as you say, and it's also a little peek into his character sort of at, a, at a great distance. Another thing I know that you write in the book as well is that it seems to be the case that he was more of a introverted character. He liked to work alone, or um, at least he wasn't completely, I suppose, happy with the idea that, that might have predominated in the academy of just being part of a big pack of philosophers who sat around chatting all the time about the great problems um, of life. And in a way, that makes the picture of him in this lagoon in Lesbos all the more attractive, because showing a, again a contrasting side of his personality um it might be more solitary work for example do you think yes we do have various sort of biographical snippets that try to describe his character and one of them suggests that he was a fairly sort of bookish young student um the academy would have been shaped we presume by dialogue and debate and discussion and um one bit of evidence we have suggests that that wasn't really aristotle's thing and he probably was much happier going off and and reading on his own and one of the things that's striking about a number of aristotle's books is that in the opening section he'll give a kind of a survey and a summary of all of the opinions of every thinker that's come before on this topic right before then going on to say why he thinks that his solution is the best and yeah. um, replaces everyone yeah. that's everything's gone before so there are moments where there's definitely not humility right when he's talking about the views of other other greek philosophers but what that shows is that he was reading right he was reading a lot um, and gathering all of this information, there's a sense in which he's the first historian of philosophy. He's also cre credited in the tradition for, for being the first book collector that we know about. So he was gathering all this written material. And so, again, that suggests sort of fairly solitary activity. But having said that, he did have a number of very close friends that he worked with. And one that we should mention here, who's very relevant, is uh, a chap called Theophrastus, who was actually from the island of Lesbos. And we don't know precisely when Aristotle and Theophrastus first met. It may have been that Theophrastus was at the academy and came with Aristotle over to Assos and then to Lesbos. It may have been that Theophrastus was the person who said to him, let's go back to Lesbos. There's going to be some interesting things for us to look at there. Or it could have been that, that Aristotle first met him when he arrived on the island. We don't know for sure. But Theophrastus becomes his closest friend and confidant. Um, throughout the rest of his life and his ultimately his successor after Aristotle dies as the head of his school who inherits all of Aristotle's texts and books and so on so he's not a complete loner um, but you get the suggest that he's kind of fairly quiet studious person mm. should we mention as well I think it's during this period of his life when he does have this uh, stint as a tutor to Alexander the Great is that 
it's around now. We won't go too much into it because there's more I want to ask you about. But it's, a, it's around this time, isn't it? Yes. So after a few years in Lesbos, he then goes north to Macedon at the invitation of Philip II, king of Macedon, to tutor his young precocious son, Alexander. And Aristotle spends a few years up there. Uh, and in fact, there's a great passing comment in one of Aristotle's later books where he says something along the lines of, it may well be that young men are a bit too young and inexperienced to really be able to study politics. And it could be that that was a, a swipe at his teenage pupil from mm. years earlier, where if Alexander yeah. was more interested in, you know, horse riding and, and fighting and, and doing all that kind of stuff rather than sitting down and actually learning about how politics works. Well, it's, it's it's a thought, isn't it? Brilliant. Well, we've listen. We've done the academy. We've done um, the lagoon in in Lesbos. But where would you like to go for the third of our three scenes to take a last look at Aristotle? Where would you like to go? Yeah. So, I mean, let's continue the story. So, after this brief period trying to be the tutor of Alexander, that period comes to a very violent end when Philip II is um, murdered. He's assassinated, and we don't know the precise details of that. But Aristotle is in Macedon very much at the invitation of Philip. And so with Philip out of the way, Aristotle presumably didn't feel particularly welcome there. It was a volatile situation. So he leaves and he goes back to Athens. And so our kind of third date is 335, the year that Aristotle returns to Athens. And if we think about what we've heard of his life so far, He's lived more in Athens than anywhere else, having been there for 20 years. And then he's been away for you know, about a decade or, or so. Um, so there's a sense in which, although it's not his, his town of birth, it may well have felt like his hometown. So he returns there, 335. And obviously, he's far too old by this point to go back to the academy and be a pupil there. Um, he was overlooked to become head of the academy, as we heard. And in fact... Spusippus eventually is replaced by another head and Aristotle is overlooked a second time, right? He doesn't get the invite. So he decides to set up his own school in Athens in 335 at a place called the Lyceum, which, like the academy, was another public gymnasium where people would gather to exercise and talk. And he sets up his school there on the um, just to the east of the city of Athens. And again, it's an archeological site. You can go and visit it and you can see the remains of the Lyceum. And so he and Theophrastus start teaching there and we've got various bits of information about the sorts of things that they that they did. Unfortunately, like the Academy, we don't know so much about how this thing was organized or set up. We know that some property was eventually bought. So they had a base of operations. Um, we have odd references in text to what we might think of as teaching aids. So they were setting up maps and diagrams. You can imagine the kind of ancient equivalent of a blackboard as they were working through problems. Um, some kind of library, these texts that, that Aristotle had been collecting along with his own works. And so I think perhaps the way to think about this school that Theophrastus and Aristotle set up at, at the Lyceum is a kind of a research centre. So it wouldn't have been giving large lectures to large groups of students in the way we might think of a modern university. It would have been a group of very specialist researchers gathering together, thinking about all of these you know, significant problems um, in not just biology, but also politics, ethics, the full gamut of, of intellectual inquiry. 
Mm. This is really is Aristotle in in his great moment, isn't it? Because he has all the experience of his travels and he has the grounding of his apprenticeship with Plato. Could you talk about some of the wonderful works of philosophy that come from this time in the Lyceum? So, yeah, sure. I think, I mean, it may well be that 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 most of the texts that we have were written at this point or, or you know or written up or revised at this point we've talked a bit about the the biological works already um he writes a book again to pick up on our early comments is whether he writes any books really <laughs> is, is is quite tricky so we have we have lecture notes right so he gave he gives lectures on on physics questions about space and time and causation and infinity you know so really quite quite complex questions and then we have lectures on what he calls first philosophy that we would now call metaphysics where he's dealing with questions in uh, about the relationship between form and matter that i was talking about earlier and theology mathematics um, um these sorts of questions he's giving lectures on ethics how to live a good life what are the virtues lectures on politics and in fact, the politics is quite interesting because we know that during this period, he's doing research into the constitutions of different Greek cities. And he had research assistants, we presume, gathering copies of the written constitutions of 130 different cities around the ancient Mediterranean to be able to compare and examine the, the legal and political structures of all of these different places. So, you know, this is the birth of the social sciences. Um, and one of those constitutions, the constitution of Athens um, actually survives. Um, and it was discovered in the late 19th century um, on, on papyrus. So that was a kind of a, a relatively recent chance uh, discovery that is a, um, a record of this research work that was going on at this time. Is it the only, is, am I right in saying the only one that survives is the one that relates to Athens? And there was so many more that we know about that are just tantalizingly lost to history. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Goodness. And there's another work I've got to ask you about at this time, which is his work on um, on tragedy, which also survives. And I think it comes from probably, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from, um, you say much of his work comes from this time. But his idea on literary theory, which is another pioneering discipline for him, is, is really important because you can see it through the works of Dante right through to the, the Hollywood films of today, his ideas on storytelling and dramatic form. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So we can back up a little bit. So when, when Aristotle's thinking about, uh, I was just mentioning the politics, when Aristotle's thinking about politics and a number of other topics, he's thinking about what the best form of life for a human being is. Um, and he suggests that we're social animals we, we naturally live in groups and communities, but we're not just social animals. There's much more to us than that. And if we want to live a really rich, interesting, fully human life, then we want to be able to engage in cultural pursuits. And so uh, being able to engage in drama, tragedy, literature, as well as philosophy, science, if we want to be able to do all of these things, then we want to live in the sorts of communities that can give rise to these sorts of activities. That may in itself be one of the reasons why Aristotle wanted to head back to Athens, right? It's this great center of culture at this time. And Athens is the home of a great festival of, of, of drama. Um, and one, the famous theater that, that this festival used to take place was rebuilt on the slopes of the Acropolis 
just at the time that Aristotle returns to the Lyceum. So this is all really in full swing. And so he thinks that this is an essential part of any good human life, that we need to engage in these stories because they, they add a richness to our experience of the world. They enable us to understand human behavior in various ways. They enable us to reflect on our emotional responses to situations. And they can also, particularly in the case of tragedy, they can also give us all sorts of warnings about how horribly wrong things can go if we start to make bad decisions. Or even if just life turns against us, right? If you just happen to be incredibly unfortunate, in some chance event, suddenly your whole life can unravel in horrific ways. And, and Greek tragedy used to present all of these stories and, and, and really contribute to the richness of people's lives. And so what Aristotle wants to do in his book called The Poetics is really understand how these really important stories work and how you put them together, what the key elements are, what makes a good tragedy versus a bad one. And so, again, having invented biology and invented the social sciences, he now invents literary criticism, right? Mm. <laughs> what makes a good story? And, and as you, you, you hinted at, this is something that's still taught today. And if you think about the standard sort of plot structures and plot twists in big Hollywood films, often this is making gentle references back to the sort of thing that Aristotle was describing. So just to give a couple of examples, he'll say, you know, a story needs a beginning, a middle and an end. You need a central piece of action, but you need to set it up beforehand so that people can understand what's going on. And you can't leave anything hanging. There needs to be a satisfying resolution at the end. And if some character is introduced early on in the story and he disappears out of view, you're going to expect him to come back in some way later on and play some important part in the plot. Otherwise, you're sat, sat there wondering, why on earth did this guy appear and then just disappear? These are all things that, that he's noting from studying Greek tragedy and saying, these are all the things that make a convincing, satisfying story. Mm. It, it, it's so intriguing. If people wanted to go and read a bit of Aristotle for themselves, apart from your book, which is, as I say, a, a, a wonderful way in. Is there anything that you would like to suggest as I mean, see he is known for being a bit impenetrable um, in, in modern translation, at least it's like quite thick with images and the logic is um, is always there. Are there, are there any favourites that you would like to highlight as a good place for someone just to pick up a bit of Aristotle and get a sense of his style? Well, actually, given what we were just saying, I think his book, The Poetics, is probably one of the easiest ways in because he's talking about these sorts of stories and not dealing with very sort of abstract philosophical problems. I think that's quite accessible. It's also very short, which helps. And it's probably in many ways one of his most widely read books because people coming at it from literature or cinema, for instance, um, often look at it without necessarily being interested in the rest of his philosophy. So the poetics is certainly very kind of engaging. That may well be uh, a good place to start. Um, yeah. I suppose another key book would be his work, um, The Nicomachean Ethics, which can be quite challenging quite quickly, but is a wonderful book, incredibly rich, and discusses these big questions about what it means to be a human being, how ought I to live, what are the key virtues that I ought to have, and how are they formed, the role of friendship, the role of pleasure, these sorts of questions. So that would be a, a good second choice after the poetics, perhaps. It's just an amazing fact, isn't it, that I'm pondering as I'm listening to you talk, that you can, after all these years and all these generations and different movements in intellectual thought, you can still get one of um, 
these translations today and sit in the, I don't know, the, the ruins of the the Academy or the Lyceum and read them. So that's, uh, I suppose, quite a, an optimistic thought to, um, to put in today's world, which is sometimes very, very gloomy. But I suppose I should ask you a question which I kind of think I know the answer to, uh, which is if you were... Uh, had the opportunity to go as a student to either Plato's Academy or Aristotle's Lyceum. Would you fancy either of them, one over the other? Oh gosh, that that is a very that is a very <laughs> tricky question. Um, I think I think given our context today, I'm going to have to say the Lyceum. Um, yeah. I think uh, the the range of the range of things being discussed there would have been much broader, and so I think that that would have been. And of course, it would have been building on what had already happened at the Academy. So the Lyceum, I'd say. I think you'd find me there as well. It's, it feels like a really fun place. I like the description of it as a research establishment. That's quite a, a nice modern description as well. Listen, it's been a wonderful conversation. I've got one last question to put to you before we conclude it. We always like to put a bit of material history into our episodes. So I would offer you the um, the chance, if you could go back to one of these scenes, either in Athens or Lesbos, to to pick up some some object which might remind you of this conversation today or be um, a symbol of Aristotle's work and life. Is there anything you'd like to have? Okay, so I would like to have a papyrus scroll containing one of Aristotle's lost dialogues. So you mentioned earlier that that Aristotle's text can be quite sort of impenetrable and and off-putting to a, a beginner. But in antiquity... He had a reputation for being a wonderful writer, an engaging stylist. Cicero describes him in these terms on the basis of all these lost dialogues. So I'd like to read something that Aristotle wrote that was really polished and finished and intended for a wide audience to really get a sense of him as a writer. Wow. And if you had one of those, everyone would be coming round to your house. <laughs> You'd be very popular indeed. Well, it's a great choice. It's been a really informative conversation for me. And there's so much more for people um, to discover in the book if they want to get into all of this in in more detail. But for now, I'll say John Sellers, thank you very much for taking the time to come on Travels Through Time. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to John Sellers about the magnificent mind and wonderful ideas of Aristotle the other day. His book is called Aristotle, Understanding the World's Greatest Philosopher, and it'll be out very soon from Pelican Books. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, it would really help us along if you took a moment to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, that's it from me this week. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.